Please stand for the scripture reading today. In honor of God's word. Scripture reading is in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 through chapter 10, verse 7. It will be found on the screen behind me as well. God speak to us. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, hurting quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's oil ointment give off a stench. So little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. This is the word of the Lord. This past August, uh, during the Olympic Games in London, a Chinese hurdler named, and I probably won't pronounce this entirely correctly, I apologize, Chinese hurdler named Liu Zhang uh, stepped into the starting blocks of the 110-meter hurdles as the gold medal favorite. Uh, Zhang, who has been described by his opponents as one of the best hurdlers of all time and probably the best hurdler in history, had won gold in that race in 2004 and was expected to do so again in 2008 in Beijing, in his home country, when according to the New York Times, quote, China's greatest hope was dashed as Zhang pulled out of the race with an injured Achilles tendon at the last minute. And so for the next four years, he worked tirelessly to recover and to train for another shot at the gold last month uh, in London. As the gun sounded, Zhang's pursuit of success was dashed once again as he crashed into the first hurdle and fell. Now, all of us pursue success in some way, shape, or form. Success is a very tricky thing, though. 
know, for many of us, the success that we're looking for is the proverbial American dream. Okay, so the home, family, the, the well-adjusted kids who get the good grades, you know, the car and so on and so forth. For others, success is defined by our academic performance or by our athletic performance or our, our artistic performance or, or maybe it's relationships, finding Mr. Right, you know, getting, getting her phone number. That's success. Um, for some of us, it's simply the opposite of whatever failure we grew up with. So whatever flaws we saw in our childhood or in our upbringing, the opposite of that, just so long as we don't repeat that, that would be success in our life. And then still others, it's just keeping our heads above water in a turbulent economy, just breaking even by the end of our life. That would be good enough. We all pursue success in one way or another. We work hard at it. We practice hard. We study hard. To achieve it. But what Jang learned that day, uh, a month ago, the preacher warns us in our passage that the race is not always to the swift. The battle is not always to the strong. Hard work does not always pay off. This world that we live in sometimes turns our expectations upside down. It doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, or at least the way we think it should. And so what does it look like to strive for success in an upside-down world? And what is true success? What does that even mean? What does it look like to pursue it? That's what our passage in Ecclesiastes 9 is going to force us to wrestle with this morning. So please pray with me and ask uh, as we ask God to bless our time. Lord, we do pray uh, that you would be with us right here and right now as we look into your word. We thank you that by your spirit you have promised to be among your people and to speak through your word. And Lord, you know the wrestlings in every single heart as we hear and think of that word success. You know all the different things that it means to each one of us. So I pray that you would allow your word to speak to that, to correct us where we need correction, to encourage us where we are disheartened, to help us to fix our eyes on you. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes, if you're joining us uh, for the first time this morning, we've been working through this book for a few months, and it has taught us a lot about how messed up this world is. Um, You know, his preferred, the preacher, who is probably the ancient King Solomon, his preferred description of life in this world is vanity or vapor. More literally, he uses that word 38 times in this book to describe what he's found in his pursuit of success, in his pursuit of lasting gain and significance under the sun, in the realm that you and I live out our days. Uh, and what he's found is that life is a vapor. It is smoke. It does, it's fleeting. It's fruitless. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't last. It doesn't amount to much. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. At the end, a world to to use the imagery right here in our passage, we live in a world that is upside down. Uh, Everything's turned around the contrary to what we would expect. None of our expectations are sure. Nothing is guaranteed. Our passage opens with this imagery of things turned on their head, and then it closes with that exact same imagery. Look with me in chapter nine, verse eleven. 
and listen to just that picture of things being out of whack and upside down. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, this is completely contrary to what we would normally expect when we think about these things. And we're told and we tell our children that if you work hard, there's nothing that you cannot accomplish. You know, there's nothing, you can do anything. If you study hard enough, you can get that scholarship. You can get into that college. If you train hard enough, you can, you can win that race. You can make the varsity team. If you plan and prepare adequately, you can land that job. That's how we think this world should work. And then in a single verse, the preacher pulls the rug out from under us and undercuts our entire system of motivation. It's like a glass of ice water in the face. He wakes us up from our little dream world to the harsh reality that life doesn't always work the way it should. Neither physical ability, so swiftness and strength, nor mental prowess, you know, wisdom, intelligence, knowledge, none of those can guarantee success. None of those can guarantee success. We live in an upside-down world where sometimes those with the weaker resumes get the job. Those with the slower times get the athletic scholarship. Those with the least education, end up with the nicer homes and the nicer cars. And the great equalizer here is what the preacher calls time and chance. Time and chance. But time and chance happen to them all. Now, back in chapter 3, we read that there's a time for everything and that everything is beautiful in its time. God is working these things out. But here, we, we're reminded that we don't know when that time is. Or, or what that time's going to bring us. You know, the beginning of verse 12. For man does not know his time. Because human sin and rebellion against God have turned this world upside down, it doesn't work the way it should because of our own rebellion against God. Because of that, we don't know whether this time will provide the success we're looking for or whether this time will be our last time. Period. Doing anything. There is a plan at work. We know that from the rest of this book. We know that from the rest of Scripture. God is working out His purposes, all things according to the counsel of His will. But since we can't see that, everything feels from our vantage like chance, whether it's dumb luck or bad luck. It just doesn't go the way we think. It's not truly random, but neither is it predictable. And that's the point. We cannot predict, based on our hard work, how things are going to go. When you step onto that soccer field or into that job interview, you don't know whether this is going to be the day that you score big or whether this is going to be the day where you you trip over your shoestring or over your words and you end your career. We don't know that. We don't know that. We are in this respect, as he puts it in verse 12, no different than helpless animals. You know, minding our own business only to fall into a trap. Look at verse 12. It's kind of a bleak picture. 
like fish that are taken in an evil net, or like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. There's no guarantee that life will go the way we want. Not as long as we live in an upside-down world. That's how our passage begins. It's not done, though. That's also how our passage ends. Same imagery, this time with social structures all mixed up. Take a look at me with uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. There is an evil or something wrong with this world. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, there's a lot going on in those verses, but one of the first things we see is that life's inconsistencies are not always unbiased. This particular error seems to come from some ruler that the preacher is observing, uh, how he's messing up the social structures of his day. Now, when, when we look at this, these verses, some of us, this picture rubs us the wrong way, and I think rightly so. Uh, you know, we're rightly troubled by institutions like slavery. And so the mention of that, of that word evokes just kind of a visceral reaction. Um, we might even think, you know, good, that's the way it should be. The slaves should be riding on the horse and the spoiled prince is walking behind them. There's a certain um, accuracy to that sentiment. We should be outraged when we see wrongs in this world, especially when those who have power exploit it over those who don't. But the point of this verse is much simpler than that. It's, it's again, a picture of life upside down. Things not working the way we expect them to. And sometimes not working the way they should. Notice, it's, notice who displaces the rich in verse uh, 6. It's the fools. So it's, it's those who lack the sense and the acknowledgement of God to even know how to walk successfully in this world whom this ruler has set in high places to run things. Um, Mark Twain once jested, uh, imagine that, that you're an idiot, and then imagine that you work for Congress. But I repeat myself. You know, <laughs> no offense to politicians and so on, but you know, we, we, we know a little bit of what that's like. You have people who, who don't have the right heart ending up running things, and, and it's, it's chaos. We live in an upside-down world. And so all of this forces us to ask a question. How do we respond? If life is that inconsistent, if there are no guarantees, despite how hard we work, how hard we try, what do we do? Do we just try harder to overcome it? Do we just have to redouble our efforts and, and leave no obstacle in our way or no person in our way, just run them all over to get what we want. It's tempting, but that would be to continue to live in the dream world. Where, you know, and when time and chance hit, we're going to wake up disoriented and disillusioned because that dream will not last forever. And so maybe we should just give up instead. Just throw in the towel. I can hear students telling their parents tonight, we don't need to do homework, Mom. It's not going to make any difference anyway. It's not going to guarantee anything. I might not get into that college if I finish this assignment, so who cares? Is that what we do? No, that's not. 
you know, that's to miss something else that the preacher has made a big deal of in this book. And that's the fact that we were made for work, that working, toiling before the Lord is part of his good design and creation and that there is much joy to be had in our toil, even if the results can't be guaranteed. So if we're going to pursue success in an upside down world, we need to understand first what true success looks like. What does it look like in God's eyes? And then second, you know, what it looks like to seek that amid life's inconsistencies. And despite the chaos that the preacher is observing and describing to us in this passage, he's also helping us understand four things about true success. Four different things uh, about success in God's eyes and what it looks like to pursue that. And so the first thing we see is that true success means living wisely. True success means living wisely. Notice with me the emphasis that our passage places here on wisdom. You know, if we look at this text, and really the, the section extends all the way from 9-11 through the end of chapter 10. This passage, uh, you know, the main subject of it is the benefit of wisdom and the danger of folly. Now, we've talked a lot about wisdom in this book so far, but the words wisdom or wise are used 12 times in this section. And they're contrasted against folly or fools 10 times. That's a big focus. So he's drawing our attention to the benefit of wisdom. This, this passage in our book resembles the book of Proverbs more closely than anything else in Ecclesiastes. This is good advice, sound wisdom that he's giving us here. Now, the benefit of wisdom is limited. We've seen that several times, and we're going to see it again this morning. But that doesn't mean that wisdom is not good or necessary or important as we, as we try to make our way through this world. Look at verse 13 with me. He says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. So he's commending wisdom here. He's, he's not just being pessimistic. He's saying, here's an example of something that's great, that's significant and important. And throughout this passage, he's going to continue to commend wisdom. So the first thing we learn about true success is that it means living wisely. Well, so what does that mean, though? What, what is wisdom in Scripture? What are we talking about? We mentioned a couple of weeks ago that wisdom is more than simply knowledge. It's more than just having information. Wisdom is having the skill to put that knowledge into practice in how we live. And so if knowledge is knowing where the target is on the range in the course, wisdom is having the skill to pick up the bow and arrow and actually hit the target. And throughout the scriptures, that target, what we're aiming at, according to wisdom, is defined by what's called the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. We, we see that phrase come up in every book in the Old Testament that talks about wisdom. We see it in Job. We see it in Proverbs. We see it in, in Psalm uh, 111. We see it in Ecclesiastes several times. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we're going to know what it means to, to live successfully and wisely, we need to know what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. And that's a, that's a confusing phrase for a lot of us because, you know, we're told and we think oftentimes that being afraid of something is not good. 
we shouldn't be scared of God. What kind of God would want us to be scared of him? But when the Old Testament and even the New talks about fearing God, it's not so much being afraid of him in the way we might be scared of, of a mouse or scared of the dentist or something like that. It's, it's a reverence, an awe, a respect. Uh, to summarize it as succinctly as I can, and as Tom prayed a little bit ago, to fear God is to recognize that he's God and that I'm not. That's what it means to fear the Lord. To recognize he's God. He is the one who made this world. We exist by his good grace. He gets the right to rule it, to tell us how life should look like, because he's God and I'm not. I'm his creature. And my humble and joyful duty is to worship him and to obey, to live my life in such a way that his plan and his purposes are advanced. That's fearing God. We might put it this way, make it a little bit easier to understand. It's being faithful to God. To fear God is to live faithfully before God, to treat him like God in the, in the way we speak, in the way we think, in the way we live, to live in accordance with his plan, his purposes. True success is living wisely, and living wisely is walking in faithfulness to God. Walking in faithfulness to God. And that faithfulness, this measure of true success, does not always line up with how the world defines success. And we run into a little a little confusion, a little cognitive uh, dissonance uh, often on that. What is valuable in God's eyes isn't always what's valuable in the world's eyes. And this is because in part, God's this is in part because God's wisdom is not the same thing as the world's wisdom. He doesn't value things along the same lines as our world does. According to the world's wisdom, success means it's measured by power, it's measured by money, it's measured by knowledge or strength or achievement or some kind of performance. That's the wisdom of the world when it tells you you need to be successful. But the wisdom of God turns the world's wisdom on its head. And with it, the world's definition of success. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 with me. You don't have to turn there. It should be up up above us. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through its own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ crucified the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. True success. Success in God's eyes is not a matter of performance or power, but of faithfulness to his purposes. Faithfulness to his purposes in creation and in salvation. And so true success is what God accomplished through the cross of Christ. That's true success. Jesus who gave his life for the sins of his people. Jesus whom 
Paul describes taking the opposite road. We, we look for upward mobility in our world. Jesus chose downward mobility in, in the book of Philippians. Listen to how Paul describes it. Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited for selfish gain, but he humbled him. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being Found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who would have thought that the greatest victory and success that this world has ever seen would take the shape of a king being unjustly murdered, willingly laying his life down for the sake of his people? The world has no category for success like that. And yet that's what it took for God's plan to be accomplished. That was faithfulness. That was faithfulness. We see here that it's often through our weakness that God shows his power. It's often through our weakness, the opposite of what the world is looking for, that God shows his power. True success is not our greatness. It's the greatness of God through us. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians. This is verse 26, chapter 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers, and, and listen carefully to how he describes you and me in God's story and program. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. That's us. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We like to boast in our success. And yet God completely wipes the playing field clean. We're all failures of the, in the most, in the worst sense of that term before God and his plan and his standards. And yet Christ became our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. True success depends entirely on God and gives, therefore gives all glory to God. It's not about boasting in ourselves. Jesus was faithful to his Father precisely where we all failed. He took our failures, our disobedience to God, and the folly of this entire upside-down world on himself on the cross to pay for our sins. And not just that, to rise from the dead, to give us new life, to give us his Holy Spirit so that we might walk in faithfulness and wisdom before God. Not by trying harder, but by trusting Jesus. And depending on the Spirit, walking wisely, walking faithfully 
before God. And when we do that, the shape that that takes will often be counter to what the world's looking for. Just as Christ's pattern was counter to what the world was looking for. Jesus brought life through death. He brought power through weakness. He brought greatness through humility. And he left the results in his father's hands. He trusted his father to accomplish it all. So how does that definition of success line up with you? If, you know, if true success is being faithful to God, living wisely, how does that line up with our own categories that we carried in with us this morning? What if being successful in God's eyes means attending less to things that advance my status and more to the relationships and the people whom God has given me who, who may not know Jesus yet, loving them? What if that's what true success meant for me? What if true success meant moving to a less advantaged neighborhood in order to lay my life down in service to those neighbors? You know? What if true success meant not sitting with your friends at school lunch every day, but instead seeking out those whom the world overlooks in the same way that Jesus sought you out in your weakness and shame? Would we be willing to do it? Now, I don't know what it means. That's, you, know, you and the Lord need to work that out. What is he calling you to? I don't know what that means. But true success is not always defined the same way as the world does. It's, it's measured by faithfulness to God, trusting in God and the power of his spirit, being faithful to God and his purposes. And I want to stop for a minute and say, if, if this whole idea of trusting in Jesus, of, you know, realizing somehow I've failed before God and that I need to trust in Christ, that he's succeeded where I've failed and, and that God even has a plan and purpose that somehow involves me. If any of those ideas are new to you, I would love to visit afterwards. I'd love to grab a cup of coffee, talk further this week, because this is important stuff. So, so true success, as God measures it, is living wisely, being faithful to God and his purposes. So how do we go about pursuing that then? If that's the standard, if that's the measure, what does it look like as we beat our head up against a wall day after day in and day out in this upside down world? What does that look like? Well, the preacher goes on to give us three more pictures of what it looks like to live successfully and to put wisdom into practice amid this upside down world. So next, true success means Doing what is right even when the world doesn't recognize us. It means doing what is right even when the world doesn't recognize us. Let's look at the example of wisdom that the preacher gives us in, in verses 13 to 16. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. 
And But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So the preacher's telling us a story, a story that exemplifies wisdom. And from the sounds of it, he's relating a true story, uh, not just a parable. Now, a lot of people have tried to figure out, so who, who, who's he talking about? What story is this? But the fact that the townspeople don't even remember the guy's name is a pretty good indication that we're not going to figure it out either. <laughs> but that same fact that this person is forgotten illustrates what true success sometimes looks like here. We have an example of someone employing his wisdom to do what is right, even though it gained him no glory. Even though there was no lasting honor, no success in the world's eyes. He even did it against great odds. I mean, this is your proverbial David and Goliath kind of story. You know, notice how the language of size here in these verses. This is a great example because a great king built great siege works against a little city with few men. You see the contrast there. And despite those odds, this poor person was able to deliver the city by his wisdom. Now, it would be wonderful to figure out what does that mean? What did he actually do to outsmart the king? We don't know. But we do know, as the preacher concludes, wisdom is better than might. Wisdom is better than power even when that wisdom doesn't give you success in the world's eyes. This man was later despised and forgotten, despite doing what is right. Sometimes we want to do what is right because we want to get noticed for it. We want that recognition. It's like waiting to turn the dishwasher on until the wife walks into the kitchen and sees it. You know, It's that kind of thing. We want the praise. We want the reward. We want the glory. To put it baldly, we want the glory. But is that true success? Isn't that stealing the glory from God who alone deserves it, who gives us the strength in our weakness to live successfully, faithfully? The temptation is to fear man instead of God, to care more about what others think of me than what God thinks of me. But true success is doing what is right, being faithful to God even when the world doesn't recognize us. And think think again just for a minute about the success of Jesus. Isaiah 53 tells us in advance that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's the picture of, you know, you're standing on the curb with your little kids and this guy walks along and he's so hideous, you're covering your kid's eyes from seeing him. That's the picture of rejection here. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. Again, Jesus accomplished the greatest victory, the greatest act of love that this world has ever known. And for it, he received rejection and ridicule. Yet, he was faithful. He was faithful. 
What are we willing to lose in order to be faithful to God? What are we willing to lose? True success means doing what is right even when the world doesn't recognize us. Third, true success means trusting God instead of grasping violently for control. Okay? Trusting God instead of grasping violently for control. We see a couple examples of that in our passage. Look at how wisdom is contrasted with intimidation and power in verses 17 to 18. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. When are you most prone to raise your voice and shout? You know, if I think about my week and, you know, when, when am I, when am I most tempted to raise my voice or to use power or intimidation to get something done? When I want to take control. Or when things are spiraling out of control and I want to bring them back into my control. That's when I'm going to raise my voice. So you shout, you get attention. And how do people tend to respond when we do that? They raise their voices back. They shout and they respond in order to take control back from you. Now, you might actually accomplish something through your intimidation and power. You might be a results guy. You know, you get stuff done. But at what cost? And is that true success? If you have to resort to power and intimidation to get what you want accomplished, is that really true success? Would God honor that? Better than feverishly grasping back and forth for control is exhibiting self-control and quiet wisdom. We see that same value in chapter 10, verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. And the point here is not simply you know, learning the art of speaking calmly and quietly in order to Restore, you know, civility to the room. It's not just that. What frees us to be calm and patient is a trust that God is actually in control of the situation. If this depends on me, if, if whatever it is I'm working on depends on me and things are spiraling out of control, then I have to take control. I've got to, you know, at any cost. But if it depends on God, if he's the one working out his purposes, if he's powerful enough to do it and faithful enough to finish it, I'm free to be patient. I'm free to listen carefully, to speak slowly and to point others to him. Again, we see this wisdom, this faith demonstrated preeminently in Jesus. No situation in the history of the world was more chaotic, more evil, more unjust than the trial of Jesus Christ. That was, the, that was a mockery of justice when he was drugged before the, the Sanhedrin and then drug off to Pilate and then to Herod and so forth. But listen to how 1 Peter describes Jesus' response. This is 1 Peter 
2.22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When standing before unjust judges on earth, Jesus entrusted himself to the just judge of heaven, recognizing that even though all creation was coming unraveled at that moment, God was still at work. And facing this injustice was part of God's plan to establish justice in all the earth. True success means trusting God rather than grasping violently for control. But of course, Jesus lost that trial, didn't he? He he didn't have success in the world's eyes. He was unjustly murdered. He did not receive the vindication he deserved. Which brings us to the fourth point. That true success does not always come in this life. True success does not always come in this life. God wants us to walk wisely. He wants us to live faithfully, to do what is right, and to trust him when everything else goes wrong. But as powerful as wisdom is, stronger than the sword, it remains woefully vulnerable to foolishness and sin. Look with me at chapter 9, 18 through 10, uh, verse 3. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he's a fool. So we see here that a little folly ruins a lot of wisdom. Folly or foolishness is, of course, the opposite of wisdom, which means, again, we're not talking just about knowledge. We're talking about the posture of our heart toward God. As wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, folly or foolishness begins by ignoring the Lord, even scorning the Lord, leading your heart instead to the left, Instead of the right, which is a metaphor for right and wrong here. And betraying your foolishness to everyone who's watching. You know, the picture here is pretty funny. You know, the fool can't even walk down the road without letting everybody know he's a fool by his actions. He's that stupid. You know. There's no fear of God before his eyes. There's no fear of God before his eyes. And so in the Old Testament wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, when you see folly and foolishness, it's often walking hand in hand with wickedness and sin. So as powerful as wisdom is, it takes one drop of folly, like one fly in the ointment, to spoil the whole thing. One author comments, a little folly in a wise man is far more visible than a little wisdom in a fool. Like ketchup on a white shirt you know it sticks out and because wisdom is so vulnerable to folly it's only going to be a limited benefit in this life we can be as wise we can you know by god's grace live as faithfully 
as possible, and we will still not see the fruit of all the success that we want to for the Lord. Because time, chance, folly, and sin still get in the way. They still get in the way of our success. We still fail and let others down. People still fail and let us down. We still sin and let God down. We are still sinners in need of his grace. But the good news of the gospel is that God's grace, his his favor to those who deserve the opposite, God's grace was lavished on us so abundantly in Christ that we have not just the grace to rescue us from our sin, but the grace to strengthen us and change our lives every single day. You can never exhaust the reach of God's grace. We still live in an upside-down world, and for that reason, we're not always going to see the results or the fruit of our labor. There will be people whom you love sacrificially, who you lay your life down for, whom you open the word of God with, and you, and you explain to them the beauty and, and, and joy of Jesus, who will at some point throw it back in your face. That will happen. That feels like failure. It feels like failure. But remember, true success is faithfulness to God. It's faithfulness to God. The results are up to Him. The results are up to Him. And if we believe that, that is one of the most freeing things in ministry. That is one of the most freeing things in sharing Jesus with others. It's not up to me to convince this person of the truth of this. Only God can change their heart. My job is to be faithful and proclaim and pray and love and die in service for them. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will, when the Lord returns, turn this upside-down world right side up. He will receive the glory due His name. We will enjoy the fruit of our labor in a new heavens and new earth. But in the meantime, he's using weak, vulnerable, small, foolish people like you and me to demonstrate his greatness, to show the world how big God is as he calls us in Christ and by the Spirit to live wisely, to do what is right, even when we get no credit for it, to trust God instead of grasping for control while we wait for our Lord to return and to make all things new. May God be pleased to bring that kind of success to our lives, to our congregation, to our families, a faithfulness that's anchored in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts continue to wrestle with what you have to say in this book. And each week it feels like it throws us for one loop or another. And yet, amid the vanity, amid the vapor, amid our frustrations and disappointments, there is the cross, our navigation point, reminding us who you are, what you've done, and that in you there is hope, there is life, there is joy. There is even the joy of walking faithfully 
by your grace, by your spirit. God, may this congregation be one who is eager to die and to lay our lives down for the sake of your gospel. May we experience that among us in community as we love one another. May we experience it as we live on mission to make disciples of our workplaces, of our our neighborhoods, our families, across the world. May you be pleased to help us be faithful to you and live according to your pattern of success, the kind that puts the spotlight on your greatness, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.